0: Let's get to Hebrews chapter 1. Let me say this. We had a a bit of a comical discussion this past week amongst the staff. Um, I I was getting ahead in my study into chapter 2 and into chapter 3, looking into chapter 6 of Hebrews, and uh, I went over to the staff and just said, man, this book is so hard. It is not an easy book uh, to properly, fully understand. It's an easy book in terms of being able to read and grasp the bigger pictures and what's being stated. Jesus is better than angels and better than Aaron and better than Moses. But there are a lot of very nuanced things in this particular book. Um, For example, and I'll illustrate it. I believe it's in chapter 4 when it calls the veil the flesh of Jesus. How many of you are familiar with that? Uh, I preached on that a couple times. That's not a readily available, obvious thing when you read through it just casually. That's something you really got to dive in and know uh, what is the the direct object? What is the indirect object? You got to know some of these things to be able to fully grasp this book. And so this book is difficult. In fact, I was Brother Hunter, and you know what Brother Hunter tried to do? He tried to talk me out of Hebrews. He said, just preach Romans. He said, you only made it two verses in anyway. Just go to Romans. And uh, uh, I, would, I gotta be honest with you, I was mildly tempted. You know why? And here's the primary reason, and you can, you can disagree and you can be wrong. Here's the primary reason I don't think Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. And when you read the book of, of Romans, you really have to try to be a heretic. Like you'd absolutely have to put effort into being like, I know it says by grace are you saved through faith, but here's what I think it should mean. Whereas with the book of Hebrews, you don't even have to try you could just not understand a sentence structure and you could end up completely left field of what the verse is intending to mean. And uh, so I'll give you an example. This is kind of where I got like, oh man. Uh, in chapter two, it talks about how Jesus is made a little lower than the angels. And to be honest with you, in the first couple of verses, you don't even know if it's talking about humanity or Jesus, but he's made lower than the angels. And we won't discuss this. I'm just gonna throw it out there and let you do some homework on it. But here's my question. And I hope you ask questions while you read the Bible by what measurement is Jesus made lower than the angels? And you'd say, well, because he's made humanity or he's made man. So does that mean that he is less valuable than the angels or that he's less powerful than the angels? Well, we know those two are not true. So how is Jesus made lower than the angels in chapter two? So you could just read through that and be like, yep, he's made lower than the angels and then go on and never give it a second deeper thought and you didn't really fully understand the depth of the book. And so this book is deep, 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 deep. And so we're going to have to move with that in, in, in full understanding. Um, and so again, I, it, could, it could have been Paul. I don't know if it was Paul. Um, it, it, imagine if you were reading a manuscript of my sermon and then reading a manuscript of somebody else. You, you'd probably be able to see some of the differences, though that really doesn't matter. But to me, I'm thinking, man, if Paul wrote this, I think I would be able to, you know, be able to navigate it easier. Uh, This book is very, very eloquent, but a beautiful book and a powerful book. And I hope that that was taken with no disrespect. It's powerful. It's beautiful. It's God ordained. But it's written to a people who had a much better understanding of the Hebrew culture and and way of living and Bible than I do. And so we're going to dive in back to Hebrews chapter one, verse number one. And I ask that you'd be patient with me um, as I try to interpret these things. Some of the areas that I will have to be it's there, there will be times in this particular book I'm going to have to say, hey, there's kind of two ways this could mean. Uh, neither of them are going to be in conflict with each other, but it's important that we, we put both of those out there. And so just be a little patient with me, if you will. I'll try to be as honest to the text and to my understanding of the text as I possibly can. So Hebrews chapter 1, verse number 1 says, God, who at sundry times and diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, Real simple, real basic. God in the past, we already saw these two verses, so we should have a relative grasp on it. God in the past chose by different methods to speak two men uh, giving his revelation. But in verse number two, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, and that's a key word. That's the whole chapter, chapter one, not chapter two. That's all of chapter one is about the sonship of Jesus. He says, but hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. So there's a lot in this passage. Like I said, if you're just casually reading your Bible, which I don't advocate for, I think everybody should read and study. I don't think you should just read through. I'd I'd be far more... I'd I'd, I'd advocate far more for studying and reading less, but understanding, Um, you know, if you're going to spend an hour, um, there are different times and different ways to approach it. You can read, you know, 15 chapters, or you can read four chapters and really, really, really understand it. And I think both have their place. You know, I think two years ago, we read through the entire New Testament in a month. And I think that was huge. I think it was awesome. I learned a lot just doing it in kind of successive order. But I really think it's important that we stop and really understand the nuances. So we could read through verse number two and just kind of move on. Hath in these last days spoken unto us, by his son whom he hath appointed so real quick god's sovereign authority appoints jesus to be heir of all things and jesus by whom all also he made the worlds and so this is asserting the creative role of jesus in all of existence. Now, the first two verses of Hebrews are very, very similar to the first few verses of John's Gospel, uh, where it talks about in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Oh, forgive me. Yeah, uh, it talks about Jesus being the Word and the creative force in uh, the Genesis account, and here Hebrews asserts the exact same thing: that Jesus was the force in all of creation. By Him, all things were made; the worlds were made. Look at verse number three. Here's where we start getting into, and here's a, a, qualification, or a quality of the book of Hebrews. There are a lot of uh, pronouns. I think that's the right word. There are a lot of pronouns used. And so what'll happen is like in verse one, it'll establish it's Jesus, but you're gonna be down in verse five, six, and seven. And you're, you're gonna have to remember who the subject is when you see the word he, or who, you're going to have to, that's, that's a hallmark of the book of Hebrews, where a subject is introduced and then you end up with a bunch of pronouns that are referring to it, and you can get kind of lost in that, so be intentional about that. Verse 3, who, Jesus, being the brightness of his, notice the second uh, plural pronoun, of his glory. So it says that, hey, Jesus is the brightness or the visual display of the glory of him. Well, of, of who's him? Him would be God the Father. So keep reading. The express or the exact image of his, God the Father's, person. And so what he's asserting, and this is really crucial for the understanding of the rest of the chapter, is that when you see Jesus, Jesus was appointed heir of all things, Jesus by whom the worlds were created. He is the express image of God the Father. Uh, He is the brightness of his glory. Keep reading in verse number three. And upholding, so Jesus upholding all things by the word of his So really, in verse 3, we've had who, his, his, and his, and it's an even split. Two of those are about God the Father, two of those are about God the Son. And so you have to be a good student in paying attention to that. But it says that who upholds all things by the word of his power. So Jesus, by him, all things consist. And notice uh, what, what he does after. Notice the next part. It says, when he had by himself purged our sin sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So man, that is a lunchbox full of information. That's just verse three. And we learn that he's the creator of all things. By his word, all things consist. Uh, We learned that he purged our sins and that he sat down by the right hand of the Father uh, in in majesty on high. So that is a lot in one verse. So if you were just casually reading, you'd read verse three and you'd keep moving. But that's not our goal in Sunday school. We want to study the word, right? And That shouldn't be our goal in life. We should study the word. But there's some things important here is that Jesus finished the work of salvation, and he sat down as God enthroned. Now that's crucial because that's the picture that we start with. That's the opening tone of this entire book that he created all things, by him the worlds were formed, by him all things consist. He is the sole person who worked in our atonement and that after finishing the atonement and purging our sins, he sits down as God enthroned. So here's the picture. Good luck competing with that, Moses. Good luck competing with that, angels. Good luck competing with that, uh, you know, tabernacle. Good luck competing with that law. And that's, that's the whole point of the book. You start out with almost this Isaiah chapter 40 view of Jesus that he's seated and on his throne and he's high and he's finished with the work of atonement and he's holding all things together because he was the one who spoke them into existence. And then in this very chapter the author is going to go after angels and the fact that the Jewish people would hold them in too high of a reverence, that they would in some respects worship them and worship the law that they had been given, which is a whole other question. At what time did God give the law by angels? When it talks about in chapter two, it says by the word spoken by angels, the word spoken by Jesus or his spirit is better. So there's some questions we got to answer. And I hope you're, you're good at kind of retaining some of that. We'll come back to it in a minute. But the whole purpose of this book is to establish Jesus' supremacy. And, and the whole purpose that we should understand is that Moses Was never competing with him. Angels were never competing with him. The law was never competing with him. But again, the human heart is so prone to worship what we see. The human heart is so prone to worship what we hold. And the hallmark of the Hebrew faith is that they worship stuff, that they worship men, and they worship forefathers, and they worship prophets and they worship the law and they worship the covenants and they worship the temple. And listen, only Jesus is seated in glory, right? Uh, on the most high, only Jesus is seated there by the right hand of the Father. And so let's get into chapter four, or forgive me, verse four, it feels like chapter four, there's so much in it already. Verse number four, look at the first two words, being made. Now, if you're a Mormon in here, don't say amen. <laughs> but if you're a Mormon in here, you're like, see, Jesus was created. Not what it's saying. But you see how I, what I mean by you can accidentally become a heretic pretty quick in the book of Hebrews, okay? So it says being made so much better than the angels. So being made doesn't mean that Jesus was, when he was formed, because he wasn't formed, when Jesus was created, he wasn't created. But you could take this to mean, well, when Jesus was created, God created him better than the angels. Not what the verse is saying. Not what the whole chapter is saying. In fact, the rest of this, we, we, we already saw the word appointed. The rest of this chapter deals with God's appointment of Jesus, that God establishes Jesus, this is my only son. This is the one seated on, on, I made him the one who created, I gave him the responsibility of creation. And you've got to be really careful and intentional about that. Notice what it says, being made much better than the angels. So we told you the theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better than, and it's it's seen here, but it's seen in other passages as well. So he says, so much better than the angels. As he hath, so who's he? Is he the father or he the son? He is the son. As he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So if he is Jesus, then they is who? Pop quiz. Angels, very good, excellent, yes. So you gotta be critically thinking. This is not a book you can zone out on and this is not a, a, a class you can zone out on. You gotta be able to pay attention to who these, uh, these, uh, uh, these uh, words are referring back to. And so notice what it says. He was made so much better than the angels and as he hath by inheritance. Now again, here's the key. God's appointment meaning God giving something, Jesus inheriting. And so Jesus inherits something from the Father. Think with me critically in this verse, verse four, what is it that he inherited? He obtained a more excellent name than they. Well, what is the name he was given that the angels were never given? Notice it, verse five. For unto, and we're about to embark, notice this, we're about to embark on a series of questions that the author is going to submit. And and here's, this is really important. We're going to be in these questions for a while. You're going to forget that they're questions. And this is, this is, you have to be really careful with this because if you forget they're questions, you can think they're assertions. And he is asserting something, but he's really asking a question that the, the reader needs to know the answer to. So notice what he says. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, and that's cru, crucial too, because we're going to go past, present, and future. And he says, never, not any time. To which of the angels uh, said he at any time, Thou art my son. So that's the inherited name Jesus was appointed by the Father. Yes, he was creator. Yes, he was atoner. Yes, he sat down at the right hand on on majesty on high, but he is assigned the name by the Father of the Son. Jesus, by inheritance, is the only natural eternal son of the heavenly Father. And so he is called Son. That is a title that is only rightfully claimed by Jesus. Now, wildly enough, and you'll get into chapter number two, we get that title too, to a certain degree. We're not the only begotten son of God. We are the redeemed, adopted sons of God, and it's a beautiful thing that hey, the angels don't even get it. They're never been called sons, but we've been called sons, and it's it's a really beautiful thing that that the author's trying to give us. But we'll have to get to that in a little bit. So let me ask you. Uh, 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 well, let's keep reading, verse one. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, "Thou art my son"? Please pay attention intentionally to this next statement. This day have I begotten. The Now, here's here's why I say it's important. Is that a statement or a question? It's a question, okay? We make a mistake when we think that God is stating something about Jesus exclusively, as though he's saying, hey, this is my only begotten son. Now, he is, but we interpret that incorrectly if we fail to understand that it is still a question, because here's what he's saying. Here's the question. Here's what verse number five is is kind of encapsulating. The question is to the angels. He is saying, did God ever in time past or today, this day, has God ever claimed an angel as his son? That's That's what verse five is saying. He said, at what time in the past and at what time ever has God ever looked at an angel and said, this day I claim you, I appoint you an inheritance to be my son. And the answer is never. He never did that. And you'll see in a little bit that he never will do that either. And so this day have I begotten thee is not a statement of Jesus' origin. It is actually a statement of his current status as a son. Okay? Digest that for a second. Let me back it up. Okay? This day have I begotten thee is he's not talking to Jesus. He's not even talking about Jesus. He says, under which of the angels has he ever said... This day, you are my son that I have begotten. Now we know that Jesus is the only begotten of the father, right? But begotten is speaking of a current status as son. And so what the author says here, it's not a statement of Jesus' origin that, well, he was created, he, you know, he was begotten as in terms of if you birth a child. Now you're going to see in the next coming verses, he was begotten into the world. But this isn't talking about Jesus' eternal state. It's talking about Jesus' present state, that you are my presently claimed son, This is a question about the status of angels. Did he ever say this to the angels? No, he never did. Keep reading, verse five. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. What punctuation mark comes at the end of that verse? Don't forget, it's a question. So he says, so again, you could be like, yeah, Jesus, the father's talking about Jesus that I will be your father and you'll be a son. Now, is that true of Jesus and and God's relationship? Yes, that's not the point of the question. The point of the question, don't lose the subject. He's talking about angels. Never to angels in the past and never in the present has God ever said, I am your father and you are my son. That's never happened, okay? That's important. Jesus' status as son is, is, was, or forgive me, was, is, and will always be. So he's again, he says, I, uh, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, question mark. So never in the past, no one in the present, and only Jesus in the future will ever be called the only begotten son of the father. Let's keep reading. And I know it's a lot, and it's, easy, it's hard to digest, so just stay with. Verse 6, and again, when he bringeth in the first begotten. So he's going to prove another point. Again, hey, on top of that, on top of the fact that God never called any of the angels his sons, on top of that, when he bringeth his first begotten into the world, now we're speaking to Jesus, he saith, notice this, let all the angels of God, would you read the last two words? Worship him. So Jesus is not begotten in eternity past. He's begotten into the world. Jesus is uncreated. He has no beginning and no end, but he was begotten. He was born into this world through a mother's womb. But did you notice the whole heartbeat of the text is what he's saying is, even when he came to earth, here's what God told all the angels worship him. He is the creator. He is God. They were made to worship him. And understand this. I mentioned it briefly when we started service. Worship is all about authority structure. Okay. It's all about authority structure. We do not worship things that are below us. At least we shouldn't. Right now, humanity or history shows us that contrary to that men will craft things with their hands and they'll worship it. But real worship, what you're saying is you are higher than me. You are above me. You are greater than I. You are more eternal than I. You are more powerful than I. Which is why James, the brother of Jesus, would not worship Jesus until his resurrection. And at his resurrection, he realized you are the Christ. You are God eternal. And so remember, when we worship, we are recognizing the superiority of Jesus. And so don't ever take the song service lightly. Don't ever take giving lightly. Don't ever take private worship in your own home lightly. You're esteeming the supremacy of Jesus through your worship. So again, he tells the angels. Now, the whole heartbeat of it is, hey, Hebrews, you're worshiping, you're elevating, you're, you're holding in too high a regard, these angels and the law they gave. And that's, that's not my quote, that's, that's chapter two, okay? Um, there's some tension there, which we'll get to, but he says, you've elevated what they've done and what they gave man far above, but I'm telling you, that God is the, Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. The angels were never called sons. The angels were made to worship the begotten into the world, Son of God. Jesus is better than them, ultimately, is where he's going. So look at verse 7. And of the angels he saith, who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers, that's key, a flame of fire. Here's what he just said. God made angels to be ministers, to serve the will of their creator. To worship their God, the child in the manger, to worship their God. But notice the next word of contrast. So he says to the angels, "Your servants, you're a minister. But unto the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness, is the scepter of thy kingdom. And here is where every person, every false cult who struggles with the deity of Jesus Misassigns who's speaking and who's being spoken of. And that's why I said in the beginning, you have to know who these pronouns are talking about. Notice what it says. Unto the throne, unto the Son, well, we know that's Jesus then, he saith, well, who's he? Well, it's the one who appoints, it's the one, it's the, the Father. Unto the throne, the Father says, thy throne, O God is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness, is the scepter of thy kingdom. Listen, there is no argument here of the deity of Jesus. There is no wiggle room here. There's no place in the Greek where you can point out and be like, well, what what he was really saying, no, what he was really saying is God the Father looks at the Son and he says, angels, your servants, you, you are God. You are eternal. You are forever and ever. Listen, he never said that to any angel. He never said that to Moses. He never said that to Aaron. He never said that of the law. He never said that to any prophet because Jesus alone is the one seated after atonement at the right hand of the majesty on high, which is the whole point of chapter one, verse nine. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. So the father's still speaking. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness. Read the last three words out loud. Above thy He says, you are the anointed one. We saw that a couple weeks ago. Messiah, Messiah, you are the chosen one. You are the Christ. You are the eternal God, seated in majesty on high. You are the bridge between heaven and earth, the anointed one, verse 10. And thou, Lord, the father's still talking here. In the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of thine hands. So again, we're in verse 10. We found out who was talking in like verse eight. So it's very easy to forget who's talking and who's being spoken to. You see what I mean? That's, that's one of the hallmarks of the, the hard part about navigating Hebrews is who's speaking, who's being spoken to. But he's talk, it's, it's God the Father saying to the Son, Thou Lord, in the beginning thou hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. Verse number 11, they, so all of creation, all of heaven, including angels, including humanity, they shall perish but thou remainest and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. So all of creation, all of earth and us and our stuff's all going to wax old. But notice what the father says. And as a vesture, thou, son, shalt thou fold them up and they, us, shall be changed. The heaven, the earth shall be changed, but thou art the same. Thy years shall not fail. What do we learn in there? Well, the eternality of Jesus that he will never change, the immutability of Jesus, that he will always be the same, the, the fact that he is eternal in both directions, God forever. In fact, it was funny, my wife and I, she, uh, you, you ever have that, you ever seen your kids have the argument, well, like, they'll be like, well, uh, uh, you know, infinity, well, infinity plus, plus. and uh, my wife and I had a little bit of a, a text message joke going, and uh, she said something, and I was like, well, that plus infinity, and my wife was like, that plus eternal, and I was like, ah. Oh. And I told her, I said, theologically, you got me there. Because eternity, or rather infinity, or eternity goes on, you know, you think about like forever, like he, he's forever gonna be, but eternal means forever before and forever after. It never has a beginning and it never has an end. And it tells us here that Jesus is eternal and unchanging. Look at verse 13, we're almost done with the chapter. Again, he comes right back to square one. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? He's asking a question we already know the answer to. None of them. He never said that to any angel. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? (laughs) There's a lot in that verse too. He says these angels were servants and they were servants, yes, to their God, but they were servants to those who would inherit the salvation brought by Jesus. And so you see, uh, I'm going to be careful how I say this because again, I don't want to say something the scripture doesn't say. In the next chapter, you're going to find where Jesus is made lower than the angels. But here we find that ministers were made so they could help to those who would receive salvation. And in this later chapter, we're going to find that we'll judge angels. And it just, there's a lot there. And you got to be really, really, really loyal to the text. And that's my hope and intention. And I hope that you'll give grace as I try to do that. I hope you know my, my heart and my spirit toward this. Um, you know, we got some time and I've got the text. So let's jump into chapter two. We've got, we've got like seven or eight minutes. So let's go after it. And uh, look at verse number one. It says, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Now, I told you when we started the, cha- the book that what Paul, oh, I said Paul. It was, wasn't Paul. Brother Bob, stop it. Brother Bob's convinced. Brother Jim is convinced. We'll have some church discipline after service. No. <laughs> okay, listen. When you preach through the epistles, you're going to end up saying Paul a lot. So um, slip of the tongue. But what he's saying here, what the author is saying here, I told you in the beginning, that he would assert some biblical reality. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Aaron. This particular chapter, Jesus is better than angels. And then at the end of it, I said there was two themes. The primary one is Jesus is better. And then there's a secondary theme that's less represented. It's only represented in this one verse, though, so far. It'll be in other verses, too, but it's very, very, very subtle. And it's this, that the author says, now, hey, in light of that truth, don't walk away from Jesus. in light of of the fact that never did he say it to angels, never did he say it to any human being, in light of the fact that only God calls the Son God, in light of the fact that by him all things consist, in light of the fact that he by the word of his own mouth made and keeps the universe, in light of the fact that he will by himself roll up and fold everything like a garment and it's all going to wax old and it's going to be made new, but Jesus remains the same and his days fell not. In light of that... Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. He says, in light of the fact that Jesus is God and he's better than the angels, we need to guard our hearts from worshiping things we shouldn't. Now, again, here's where we come into some difficulty with um, us because we're not worshiping angels, right? I would assume nobody in the room uh, has an altar set up in their house to Gabriel or some kind of uh, you know, uh, you know, deity of that sort. But the fact of the matter is we do worship things. We worship spiritual things. Sometimes we worship spiritual men and we hold men in way too high a regard. And he's saying, hey, listen, in light of the fact that to no one ever, angels included, did God ever say, You're my son, you're my only begotten son. He says, Let's take heed to those things lest we slip. Um now, I wanna see if I've got the time to jump in. I think I do. Let's go to verse number two. What I don't wanna do is break into the really difficult part of chapter two just yet. Uh, and if I do, I'll just call it quits and we'll leave it with you for homework for next week. Verse two, it says, for if the word spoken, yeah, it's here. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense reward, how, verse three, shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now, great verse, just keep reading. Sounds good, right? Question. Um, what he just said was, if the revelation given by angels, if the word, logos, that was delivered to us by angels was sure, and if you disobeyed it, there was a recompense reward for your, your foolishness and disobedience, how do you think we're going to escape? What, what, what revelation did God himself not speak that he sent and gave to man by angels? I hope when you read, you ask these questions because that came across my mind. And I was like, I, I don't know. Well, let's let's do a little bit of Bible study, okay? Uh, go to Galatians chapter three. You say, well, let's go to the Old Testament and find it. I, and I could be wrong. And if I'm wrong, I, I want to hear it afterwards. I couldn't find it in my study. It doesn't say in the Old Testament that any of the books were delivered by angels. But when you get to the New Testament, there are two references that talk about books that were delivered by angels or at least somewhat credited to it. So. Go to Galatians chapter three and Acts chapter seven. We'll give you a second to get there. This is crucial. It's actually, it's actually fundamental to understanding the rest of chapter two. You will not understand chapter two and how Jesus is made lower than the angels if you do not understand what is being stated in verse two and verse three, but mostly verse two. So again, the word, I'll, you're going to Galatians three, so we're going to read, but I'm going to read for you that verse we just read in chapter, in chapter two, verse two. Says, if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, so it's absolute, it's unmovable, and then every transgression and disobedience to that law given it received a just and recompense reward. How are we escaped such a great salvation that's offered to us? So, if the word given by angels was was pure and steadfast and unmovable, and there was a you would be judged by disobeying it. Again, now we have this law under Christ. So, what revelation was given by angels? Galatians chapter three, verse nineteen. Now, some of you Paul fans out there, Bob, um, are going to like this verse right here because it's kind of where we find its origin. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed shall come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. So here's what he just, and and we don't have time to read the whole chapter. You'd have to read it, and and I'd give you full permission and, and call you to it. I don't have time to read the whole chapter. I apologize. He's talking about the law, and he says, and the law was given by angels to a mediator, to Moses, and that law when Moses died was instated across humanity. So he says the law was mediated by angels. Well, again, Paul's not the only person to say that. In fact, Stephen, while he was right before he got stoned, said the same thing. Would you go to Acts chapter 7, verse 53? Acts chapter 7, verse 53. Yeah, you being great students, by the way. I know, I know it's, it's mental elasticity this early in the morning before coffee corner, so I'm with you. He says in Acts chapter 7, verse 53, again, Stephen speaking, um, about to get stoned. Saul's going to hold some coats while people throw rocks at this first Christian martyr outside of the Lion's Gate on the east side of Jerusalem. He says, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it? So Stephen accuses them of breaking the law that was delivered to their people by angels. So that's not a contradiction. I want to be very clear about that. In the New Testament, it adds clarity because I believe due to the culture, there was an understanding that angels were a huge part in delivering this law. And that's a huge truth to grasp as we go into chapter 2 because we're about to wander into why it would even matter that Jesus is better than angels, right? Because to you and I, we're like, yeah, Jesus is better than angels, obviously. But when you're a Jew and you're a law observer and you're, a ho- you're holding to all of these things because, man, the angels gave them to us and God gave them to us. And this law, it really is an argument about the law more than it is about angels. It's an argument about authority more than it is about uh, uh, angels. It's an argument about Jesus' priesthood more than it is about Aaron. It's about him being a better priest. And so you're seeing some kind of context here. So I'm going to have to leave us with that. I know it's a weird spot to stop. Forgive me. But let me, let me back up and look at verse number two and three again. For now that we know what he's talking about, he's talking about the law. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, he says, hey, it was good. It was awesome. And every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Now, that again, which, who who are we talking about with the Lord? The God, the Father? Because if you read that, you're saying, well, you know, the angels gave us a, and the Lord gave it up. No, it's talking about Jesus. And that's important to understand. So again, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which was first begun to be spoken by the Lord? That's not talking about the Old Testament. It's talking about the New Testament. It says, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard. There were people who heard him. We were given this new law that's better than the law that was delivered before. Um, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. He said, yes, the Old Testament was a beautiful thing, and it had its place, and it was our taskmaster, and it was guiding us to these principles. But we have a new law of Jesus, and it's delivered to us by him, the Lord, the one, the Lord that God called Lord, the, the Lord that God called God, the one that's seated at the right hand. And he's better than the angels and the law that they delivered to us. And then you're going to get into this chapter, and Jesus is going to be made lower than them. And so how does this all work? So hold on to that. We'll pick it up next week.